That winter, the ice was my only friend. This was my intention, of course. Part of my romantic vision of what it would be like to spend the season alone beside a frozen lake in northern Michigan. It'll talk to you. You have to keep real still and quiet and listen for what it's trying to say. That's what my neighbor told me, sometime in October, back when there were neighbors, and the last of the docks in the water, and the Budweiser banner hung outside the general store that read, Welcome Hunters. November brought the buck pole and the gunshots that lasted well past sundown. December the snowy owls and a meteor shower or two. January disappeared like the afternoon to a nap. Rosa, holding lonely court down at the post office, caught a cold. Toby and Tessa got a new ATV and found out they were expecting. I ran out of Kathy's homemade strawberry jam. But now it was February, and five months and as many decades had passed since my induction into the frigid association between woman and water. That's what you don't know until you get to know it, aligning yourself to its rhythms, letting it lead. That the ice is alive, more so than most people. It melts in the day and refreezes at night, reforming itself while you're asleep, like a kind of lucid dream, so that every morning you awake to an altogether new solid, transmogrified in darkness, never the same ice twice. People take it for granted. They drive their trucks over it. They walk their dogs along the shallow edge. They drill holes in search of walleye, yellow perch, tiger musky, forgetting to mark the spot before they leave. Every couple years, somebody drowned. The ice was both supportive and indifferent. It trapped and it conveyed. It closely guarded its secrets, but freely dispensed of its wisdom. I left its side as little as possible, like a new mother, not wanting to miss a single moment of its development. Thirty miles. That's how far I lived from the nearest grocery store. I made the drive into Alpena every two weeks or so. The general store up the road carried me through once the milk spoiled or I ran out of bread. Otherwise, I didn't leave the house much. I planned my meals out carefully and ascetically. This was partly a practical necessity, partly an aesthetic choice. A snowstorm, and they were frequent, might throw off my meticulously laid Kroger plans, trapping me in my driveway for however long it took the stuff to melt. So I always made sure to have a few frozen pizzas and cans of tuna on hand in case. But this scarcity of immediate choice and novelty, the cheap, twin fuels of modern civilization, was in its own way liberating. To wake with the sun, to pass the hours in silence and contemplation, to live on a predictable rotation of broths and grains, these were the very things that ultimately brought color, joy, and life back to my life. But impersonating an anchorite does grow tiresome, no matter how solemn the vow or distant the retreat. It was on one such morning of weakness when the thought of choking down a bowl of oatmeal for the 91st morning in a row just did not inspire. Had something cracked overnight? In the humble, census-designated place known as Hubbard Lake, there was only one dining option available at this yawning hour. The North End Restaurant. It was across the street from the gas station where I periodically paid $2 cash to dispose of my trash bags in their dumpster. There was no trash service up north, no mail service either, unless you paid for it special. I had never been, but I knew it was the kind of place with Google reviews that said, 
I had a country fried steak the size of a hubcap. It was sure delicious. I lived on the North End, so I walked instead of driving, adding even more whimsy to the occasion. The lake's shape was a Rorschach test for the soul. I saw a hand cupped toward the heavens, like when a Catholic says the Our Father. Others saw the steady open maw of a crocodile, or from upside down, a figure dangling their feet into the water. There was some light snowfall as I rounded the pious fingertips, nearing the lake's major intersection. I was glad to have worn my hat. A stormy cromer, of course, red and black plaid. It was necessary for camouflage. The decor at the North End restaurant was the up-north classic. Fake wood paneling, antlers galore, framed pictures of ducks. I took a booth and faced the door so I could spy on the local color. There was only one other customer when I arrived, a man with a bad hearing aid reading a USA Today. When the owner or cook or both came out to do his rounds for the regulars, he asked him, And how are you today, Jimmy? Nothing. The man didn't look up. Maybe you need to change the battery on those ears of yours, Jimmy. Silence. A waitress, probably named Janet, came by to take my order. Coffee, blueberry pancakes, side of bacon, extra crispy. Before my food arrived, a loud party of three came in and sat at the booth just ahead of mine, all of them dressed for a day of winter adventuring. They were a couple in their thirties, and another man a generation older. I assumed he was one of their parents. The way the older man surveyed me as he took his seat, with eyes bluer than the infant of Prague's, I knew that he would try something. So it was no shock when minutes later he threw one arm over the back of his booth and craned his neck around to ask, would you like to sit with us? Sure, I said, smoothly abandoning my station to join theirs. I had come for a break in routine, and here it was. The couple exchanged a look between them, like, oh no, he's doing it again. But I wasn't worried. I possessed a blithe confidence that I could handle myself no matter the situation. A profound miscalculation on my part. I sat down beside the old man. He had thinning gray-white hair and at least a week of growth on his chin. He introduced himself as Fred. Old man Fred, the couple amended, almost in unison. They made for an odd pairing, I thought. The woman, a brunette with naturally pursed lips and always amused eyes, worked as a dental hygienist in Bay City and looked like it. The man, a redhead with a goatee like a cartoon villain, worked as a boat salesman, also in Bay City, and did not look like it. They all met doing sailing competitions together. Charlie and Joe, Charlie was the girl, had come up to stay with Fred for a long weekend. It was tradition, I was told, for them to attend Snowdrift, an annual rally racing event held in an obscure county northwest of here. And who are you? the old man asked. I'm from Virginia, was all I could think to say. Virginia, he exclaimed. So you're the mystery girl, the one with the station wagon and the Virginia plates. Janet came by just then and asked if I'd have my food delivered to this table instead. Yes, she will, Fred replied on my behalf before I had the chance. You don't have to, Virginia, said Joe. Actually, I'd warn against it. Charlie punched him in the arm and he laughed disproportionate to the humor of his words. Actually, my name is Cassia, I put forward. It's Virginia now, Charlie said.
You're listening to Have We Met Before. My name is Virginia, and these are stories of people I can't forget. about an hour later, and Charlie is swerving down the road towards Atlanta, which I had just been informed was the elk capital of Michigan. Joe is in the front seat, lighting up a joint. Fred and I are in the back. He's on his second Miller light since buckling in. Apparently there had been others before breakfast. I'm still nursing my first one out of politeness. Charlie and Joe get into a new fight just about every other mile marker about whether or not she made the wrong turn 15 miles back, about why she hadn't brought enough beer for the whole outing, about why she wouldn't just chill out a bit and drink while driving. What are you, 12? Joe asks her. That is not the ass of a 12-year-old, Fred adds. Hey, don't you talk about my girlfriend's ass, Joe says, obviously being sarcastic. I can see in the rearview mirror that Charlie is relieved by this chivalric discursion because at the very least it has taken the heat off of her for a moment or two. So, getting into a car with a bunch of strangers and letting them drive me 50 miles into the woods. Good idea or bad idea? I was belatedly beginning to wonder. At the restaurant, I'd thought, why not? I was bored and craving adventure. Vernon and his wife had come around. Vernon was my plumber, and I knew him to be trustworthy and they'd bantered with Fred as you would with an old, dear, somewhat problematic friend. Charlie had asked if I needed to tell anyone that I was going off with them for the day. No, I replied honestly. No one? Fred asked. You're up here all by yourself? Just me and the demons. It instantly occurred to me that it would have been a lot smarter to have lied and said I had family up here. Preferably strong, male, heavily armed family. Family that would notice and care and definitely call the police if I were to, say, not turn up at a reasonable hour. Oh well, I'll know better for my next kidnapping. Joe then made a joke about how they should grab one of the newspapers for me to hold up later in a hostage video. My captors are treating me well, he mugged, brandishing an invisible paper. That wasn't the kind of thing you said if you actually intended on taking hostages, right? Besides, one of them was a girl. How badly could things go? But now, sitting in the back seat of a car helmed by a stoned person, and passengered by people both drunk and stoned, I was slightly more concerned, although the marijuana was dulling it, less that I might be raped and killed, and more that I would blow my entire day to this broken, dysfunctional friend group. I passed the time by probing old man Fred about his entire life history. Because he was a lonely old man and I was a young, decent-looking woman, I got away with it. He was not a difficult person to get to know. He lived wholly on the surface and offered his entire character, or lack thereof, up to me freely. I don't talk to my sister anymore. I was married twice, not for me. She always thought she was better than me. My first one was a Mexican. Her daughter is just the worst. I can speak Spanish really well. A journalist, like you. Hablas Espanol? I sent her a $500 check for graduation. Haven't heard from her since, the little bitch. I never thought about it that way. You really make me think, V. I like how before it was Virginia and now it's just V, Charlie said. V is sexier, Joe said. 
V doesn't need a new name to be sexy, Fred said. I found all of this chatter very amusing, seeing as I don't think there was a period of my life post-puberty when I was consistently less sexy than I was that winter. I'd foregone shaving my legs after rifle season and had long since forgotten how to apply makeup. We drove ten miles out of the way to a gas station where Joe could get more beer. There was some tension between the unhappy couple about how much it cost and how it would have been cheaper back at the general store, but by that point in the drive I had developed a sort of band-aid adult children of alcoholic syndrome and had therefore lost the ability to feel it. You worry too much, Joe said, lighting up a second joint and passing it around the car. Fred wasn't smoking anymore. It makes me loopy, he said. But you keep having it, V. I want to see you get loopy. He was a transparent fool, which I found both pathetic and disarming. You're out of luck, I said. Drugs do almost nothing for me. When it came her turn, Joe carefully held the joint up to Charlie's lips so she could take a hit without removing her hands from the steering wheel. She wouldn't drink while driving, but she would smoke. I was amazed at their ability to swap some of the most vicious words I have ever heard pass between two people, quote, in love, unquote, and yet still retain a deep sense of attachment to one another. When it came to their vices, they could get along. Who was worse at human relationships? These two, Fred or me? I honestly could not say. At some point, Fred needed to pee. He insisted that he was too dignified to do so on the side of the road. So Charlie pulled over into a high school parking lot. Home of the Beavers, I think it was. Why didn't you go back at the gas station? Joe asked impatiently. When you have to go, you have to go, Charlie said, and no one could dispute such a claim. Fred was too drunk by then to unlock the door for himself, so he pulled at it madly until Charlie unlocked it from the front seat. Over there, old man, away from the lamppost, Joe instructed. Fred, as anyone could have predicted, purposefully went over to the forbidden lamppost and unzipped himself there. Hurry up! People get arrested for this kind of thing, Joe said. This provoked Fred to do a full Chinese fire drill around the car with his pants still undone. Charlie laughed like a little girl. Come on, old man, you don't want Virginia to see that, Joe said. You worry too much, Fred said as he got back into the car, and Charlie honked the horn in agreement. Now we were properly lost in the dense and ever-darkening forest. There was ongoing dialogue about whether or not Charlie knew where the fuck she was going. I've been here more times than you, Joe. Well, it sure as shit doesn't seem like it, etc., etc. The entire journey had been so low-grade stressful that I was surprised when we finally came upon a long line of cars clearly queued for some kind of spectator event. I had forgotten that enjoyment was supposedly the object of all of this, similar to how I felt in a theater when the movie started after being forced to endure half a dozen trailers. Oh yeah! This was, in fact, recreation, and I actively chose to be here. Charlie, for whatever her level of THC, maintained excellent composure as she had to back the car up down a long, twisty, entirely iced-over road in order to park. We unloaded the car as a stream of revelers migrated up the road towards the action, a shockingly large number of them dragging sleds piled high with cases of beer behind them. We should have brought a sled, Joe complained. He was like a child. Every drink, every toy, every candy available to anyone, he had to have. 
Old man Fred was under ideal conditions. Here he was, at a large, unregulated, alcoholic event, with an endless supply of people to make aggressive, intoxicated conversation with. A place where borderline rude intrusions into other people's space and lives were not frowned upon, but celebrated. He would not squander the opportunity. Hey, hey! Is that a drug-sniffing dog? He yelled at one of the many lumberjack types, leading a canine into the fray. Get him out of here! Don't let him near me! Don't let him sniff me! Fred shouted. The dog was no larger than a snow boot. I briefly wished that I could be this normal-looking dog owner, whose only association with Fred was this one-off moment, with him shooting Fred a look of half-amusement, half-pity, before going on his own way forever. Goodbye, perfect stranger. Enjoy your perfect stranger's life. Whatever I expected from this event, what I discovered was not it. Snowdrift was without a doubt the coolest party I have ever attended, and it wasn't even explicitly a party. Imagine dusk falling, hundreds of people milling about the northern hardwood, slowly drifting toward the road that cascaded through the clearing like a wedding train, that workers were pouring extra water on before the cars came through to make it even slipperier, boys disappearing into the cover in search of firewood, little bonfires raging down the roadside, bottles of bourbon and vodka and whiskey burning through the crowd without ever seeming to empty, Music emanating from mysterious places, stars peeking out, everyone sharing in the spirit of communion, semi-illicit activity, and kleptothermy. We joined up with a group of students from Marquette who'd driven down just for this. All of them men. The general crowd was overwhelmingly flanneled, beanied, and bearded, with only the odd put-upon girlfriend thrown in for good measure. The Marquette clan had already been there since morning and had decorated an entire medium-sized tree with empty beer cans hanging by their tabs. With a miserable drunkenness oblige, they all cheered each time a new one was added to the tree. Joe paid our rent to them in bonfire maintenance, leaving Charlie, Fred, and I the freedom to mingle. One of the boys, a biophysics major, whipped out his phone to show me a video of one of the race cars spinning out, flipping over, and crushing an onlooker to death. Look, look, here it comes. See that guy there? He's about to get... Oh, there it is! Smashed him! He spoke exclusively in YouTube comments. When did this happen? I asked. Yesterday! He squealed in delight. I must have looked horrified, because Charlie tried to soothe me by saying, Oh, but he was just a photographer. As if that somehow disqualified the rest of us, non-photographers, from being similarly flattened. Look, if anything happens, just hit the ground. I'll protect you if I can, Fred said. Are fatalities common, I asked? There were two cops in the parking lot and a single porta potty. Otherwise, this massive, death-defying gathering was entirely unchaperoned. I don't think so, Charlie replied. She was cradling a stranger's chihuahua in her arms like a baby. The cars flew past in a few seconds of roar and blur and screaming. Nobody was critically injured, and it all felt a little anticlimactic. We hung out for a little while longer, vaguely waiting for some resolution that would draw the curtain on this whole experience. But once a main event ends, all the little discomforts of its setting become more potent, the cold, the boredom, the company. The ride home was quiet and endless, as rides home usually are. We stopped at the general store for more alcohol. We had been sober for maybe 45 minutes, and that was far too long. 
This was where I had meant to come for holdover provisions after breakfast, which felt like a lifetime ago. I grabbed my usual loaf of bread and a half gallon of milk. Milk, Fred said when he saw what I was holding. You are a baby, V. Nothing could be said to me without my alias attached to it. Old man Fred bought a six-pack of bush beer, a carton of ice cream, cookies and cream, and a lottery ticket. He somehow got into an altercation with the woman behind the counter while trying to direct her to his preferred variety of ticket. He was one of those people who was so social he became antisocial. Drinking from dawn till dawn probably did not help with his interpersonal fluency. But even as he actively alienated people, he still desperately craved their approval. I think we got off on the wrong foot here, he said as she handed him over the receipt. It's not what I intended, and I'd like to fix it. I stood there beside him, stunned by this sudden mea culpa. I've known you for forty years, Fred, she replied. We got off on the wrong planet. It's not too late for us, Jean. Could I buy you a beer sometime? I don't drink beer, she replied, crossing her arms. A glass of wine, then. I don't drink wine, Fred. What do you drink? he asked. I only drink Jim Beam. Old man Fred and I sat together on his living room couch watching Turner classic movies. Charlie and Joe were working on dinner in his kitchen. I have no idea what time it was now. My phone was dead. I'd felt hungry hours ago, but my body had adjusted. Do you like these old fart movies? Fred asked. Yeah, actually, I grew up watching this channel nonstop. They don't make them like this anymore. Movies about good sorts of people. People with morals and things. I paused, struggling to reconcile this comment with the lips that uttered it. I remembered a sign on the wall of my first job that read, When you're tempted to make a statement, ask a question. So I did as the sign said, and asked, Do you consider yourself a morally driven person? Well, I am good, but not that good. There was a lull in our conversation, but it was hardly silent. In fact, all the background noise seemed to swell in response to our quiet. Gregory Peck himself was suddenly crawling out of the television and directly into my right ear. Northern wind beat hard against the sprawling windows that, had there been a prick of light outside, would have revealed a stunning lakeside panorama. Charlie and Joe bickering around the corner, the pasta water coming to a boil, the bathroom toilet running, the heater shutting off. Look, I'm tired, Fred said, and everything turned back to Fred. I'm gonna lie down back there and try to go to sleep. He stood up and looked down on me. I don't know what you're running from, V, but someone like you doesn't end up here all alone because only good things happen to them. If you ever need someone to keep you warm at night, you know where to find me. I was simultaneously touched, frightened, unsurprised, and mystified. Obviously, we had been playing at a pseudo-romantic game all day long, with me as a willing participant. This was the natural, bittersweet fruit of the détente that had always and would always exist between older men and younger women. I had no problem with it. I even found it enlightening and largely innocent fun so long as no red lines were crossed. And I don't think that one was crossed here. The startling realization was this, that all the while I thought I was reading Old Man Fred like the life section of a USA Today, Old Man Fred was the one reading me. 
A couple days later, I noticed a voicemail from a local number. Hey, Virginia! No, no, I'm just kidding. I know your real name. Hello, Cassia. It's Fred. Old man Fred. I'd exchange numbers with Charlie when she drove me home later that night. You should come sailing with us when things thaw out, she'd said. She must have given it to him. The kids and I were just going to watch Trump's State of the Union this evening, and I was going to order a pizza from the Stone Bar. Charlie would be very happy if he joined us. And Joe wants to know where you got that old military coat. One of us can come pick you up if you don't remember where we're at. Give me a call back here at the house. The number is 989-827-21. I didn't go. And I didn't respond. But I kept the voicemail saved on my phone for an unreasonably long period of time. He doesn't sound that old, my mom said, months later, when I played it back for her. He sounds quite handsome, actually. He wasn't, I said, disliking the severity of my own words even as they left my mouth. For the rest of that eternal winter, when night fell and I'd see the scarce flicker of bonfire pits from across the frozen lake, one or two or three at most, I'd wonder if he was behind one of them with him looking out at me and me looking out at him, although neither of us could see more than the moon and the flames and our own cracked hands in front of our faces. He lived somewhere across the North Bay, though I had no wish to ever see old man Fred again. I somehow felt less isolated knowing he was out there, across a massive block of ice, frozen solid at least ten inches down, just as lonely and dissatisfied as I. For listening to Have We Met Before. Join me again in two weeks to meet the man with the strongest lungs in the Caribbean. Theme music composed by John Hookstra. to Thad Helsley for contributing his voiceover talent. I also want to wish my mother, Keisha Keith, a feliz cumpleaños, as it will be her birthday on the day this episode posts. <laughs>